Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Lamp. I'm your host, James Lampion. And my guest today is an author and a licensed therapist, Mr. Rashad Mills. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. It's really an honor to talk with you because uh, I've been following your page for, uh, I'm not sure for how long, maybe about, I would say about six months, but I've always, um, you know, enjoyed the videos, like the quick messages that you put out. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate it. That's one of the things that I really, um, I really take pride in just dropping my messages. And it's interesting, um, James, that probably over the last three or four months, I changed the format. So as a, you know, keynote, inspirational, motivational, transformational speaker, however, um, you want to refer, refer to me as at one point I was really into, you know, gaining followers and going national as the speaker. And then I was so involved in it. I felt like that my messages weren't as impactful. Um, because I was worried about the result of the message and not the impact of the message. So I went to this like Instagram real, you know, um, sort of format, you know, no music behind it. I'm not editing videos, whatever God lays on my heart for that day. I just grabbed my phone and, and dropped the message. When did you, so when did you get comfortable changing? Because let's be honest, a lot of us are looking to gain more followers. So what made you say, you know what, my message is getting diluted. And you were comfortable acknowledging that. Here, here's what's really interesting. And we just talked about this before we started the podcast. Um, this kind of goes back to the situation that landed me in, in jail for three months. It's very interesting how God will direct us, right, and, and change us. In jail is, and this is very interesting, man, is one of the periods in my life, James, where my anxiety about the next activity, my anxiety about being dad, my anxiety about you know, taking my speaking business to the next level, all these different things. I didn't have that. And it gave me the opportunity when I was in a jail cell just to sit. And when I was sitting in the jail cell, I truly believed that God was saying, hey, Rashad, just slow down. Allow me to order your steps and you'll get to wherever I need you to be. I will ensure that you get there. But at your pace, you're not going to get there. You're going to burn yourself out. Because before I went in, I was literally staying up to 11 and 12 o'clock you know, figuring out, trying to figure out algorithm and sending messages to schools and businesses, you know, trying to position myself as the speaker. And when I went to jail, I didn't drop an Instagram, a Facebook message for three months. And it gave me a sense of peace and it gave me an interesting sense of comfort. And it was like, man, I, I didn't do it for three months. And the first message that I actually did post jail it was just, I put up a picture and I had on a sweatshirt and it was like um, Jesus and coffee. And it was like, it gained so much traction, just this picture. And I was like, you know what? Maybe taking this three month break was really, really good. It was good for my soul. And now I truly, I truly, truly believe what is for me is for me. And I don't have to, to grind to get there. I believe I have to work hard, but not grinding to the point that it's detrimental to my own health and my own well-being. And I just believe wherever God wants me to be, I I'm going to arrive and I'm going to arrive at the perfect time. What year was the incarceration? That was in 2019. It was, oh man, I should remember the dates because it was so impactful. I think it was in June of 2019. And then I got out in September, September that year. And that that experience like changed changed the course of my life and certainly how I I view, you know, the things that I do. So it's safe to say, had you not 
being incarcerated for the t- for the time period, you may not be where you are today. Absolutely not. I, absolutely not. Uh, my relationship with God improved tremendously. It was another, James, it was like another, um, it was another example that God said, even though you are flawed, I still got you. And now I truly believe that going to jail at my age and already had established life, home, car, you know, kids, it was like, wow, if I can get through this, I can literally get through anything. I mean, and as a result of that, you know, I wrote a book. Um, so I, it's no doubt in my mind that it changed, changed me completely. It changed my relationship with God completely. I'm talking about completely. Um, it changed my outlook on life. It let me know that I, I still have some things to work on. Um, it's so many lessons, but it, I mean, it changed the way that I, I view life. Um, I'll give you a quick example. When I was in jail, I missed for the first time in my life, I missed the first day of school for my kids. And it mm. crushed me because I'm like, I'm one of those quote unquote dad dads, like dad dads. Like I want to be there for everything. Mm. I mean, if you have a, um, a spitball contest, I'm going to be in the front. <laughs> I'm going to be in the front seat because I have twin girls. Like I'm going to be there. I'm that kind of dad. And when I missed their first day of school and I was actually, I was in a work release program in the jail. So, you know, we leave out the jail, go work. And then you come in and check back in. And the route that I was taking to actually go to work, I had the opportunity that I could have gotten off the bus and went to my kids' school to see them. But, you know, jail, the jail rules indicated that you shouldn't do anything. You get on the bus and you go directly to your, um, to the place that you're working at. And I thought about it. And I said, man, it would be just my luck. And somebody from the jail is, you know, driving in and they see me. And I said, I'm, I'm not going to chance it. But it was, it was heartbreak. And so as a result of that, like, you know, every chance that I get to spend, you know, with my kids and some days, you know, taking them to school and camp, it's like, oh man, I'm tired. But I always reflect, man, you better be appreciative of this because at some point you got to remember not too long ago, you couldn't, like you literally couldn't do it. So it, it changed everything. You've mentioned several times your relationship with God got better. Mm-hmm. What was your relationship with God like before you went in? I always equated to to these terms. My relationship with God before going in, um, I did a lot of heavy flirting with God. Hmm. You know, I was raised in the church, was an usher, um, you know, different points, even, you know, we'll talk about this tonight, even, you know, I was drinking and just partying and just sort of a train wreck. You know, I would still had a relationship with God, but prior to that was the closest I had been before going to jail. You know, reading my Bible in the church that I was involved in, you know, Tuesday Bible study, if I could do Wednesday Bible study. I mean, I was there because I needed, you know, I felt my life changing for the better at that point. So it was a lot of heavy flirting. But then post jail, it was like, or during the time of jail, it was like, man, God is all I have. So it wasn't wasn't flirting. It was like we're in a full-fledged relationship. A full-fledged relationship. God is saying, man, I need you to be attached to me and nothing else. And if I have to get your attention this way, I'm going to do it. And even how God guided me through the process is like, man, I could never, I could never stray away. I can't flirt anymore. I have to be um, in a full-fledged relationship with, with God um, because <laughs> that's, that's all I had. And in the, in the most trying time, that's all I had. 
And even how he directed the situation, you know, one of my best friends was like incredibly instrumental in terms of helping me and setting me up with the work release program. And, you know, I, I got out of jail, still had housing, still had my car. Um, you know, I didn't have the job that I had before I went in, but I came out and got an even better job. Okay. Um, so God like opened up so many, so many doors um, throughout that entire process. And, and I'm glad you mentioned you were out um, drinking and partying because the post that caught my attention, you talked, to, you mentioned that you're getting ready to celebrate seven years of sobriety. And first of all, congratulations, because I, I know that's, that's tough. Um, what led you to that decision to get sober? Wow, man, it was, <laughs> man, um, it was a, a, a hell of an experience. So... It was, it was multiple decisions. One of them was, James, I was literally tired of drinking. I was tired. I mean, I was just flat out tired and frustrated. And I vividly remember this. The day that I stopped, it was July the 18th, 2015. And my cousin and I were leaving a concert, Jill, Jill Scott concert, vividly remember this. And we went to this concert and I remember, this was like my routine. Anyway, I was out socially, I was gonna be drinking. And I remember having um, like two shots of Hennessy, you know, a double shot in the cup. And then I remember having a beer and I went back and I did the same thing. And I have a nice, have a nice little buzz going in the concert, enjoy myself with my cousin and we're leaving. And she said, you don't need anything else to drink. And I said, well, you know, this is what I do. And I said it like in this joking manner, this is what I do. And I remember stopping at a liquor store and buying like some off brand and at this point, I'm mixing, I'm going against all the drinking rules, right? Now it's dark with light. I'm doing it all. So I had Hennessy and then I mixed it with some kind of cheap vodka. And I remember when I got home that night, I remember saying to myself, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Because it had gotten to the point that although I was, I was buzzed, my tolerance was so high, I would have to continually drink. And then I found myself drinking things that were not as good in terms of quality, but I thought that they would be stronger so I can find this buzz because my, my tolerance had just been so high, just drinking over the years. And it was really, it really interesting because when I said that, God, I don't want to drink anymore. I woke up the next day and never had a drink since. Has, have, have those times been different times where, you know, the thought of fleeting thought will cross my mind? Yeah. It will. And if I can be honest with you, and I'm a, I'm a very open book, I just, I believe in keeping it all the way honest with people. Um, I'm going through a challenging point in my life right now. And, um, and two weeks ago, actually, yeah, two weeks ago, I was at an event um, for the mental health practice that I work for. The owner of the practice had a birthday party. And just, she's a wonderful sister. And anytime she invites me to anything, she'll always say, Rashad, just to let you know, it's alcohol day. I just respect you enough to tell you, which I, you know, I appreciate. And I was at this event and I have some personal stuff going on. And it's really like, really, really challenging me to my core. And the smell of Hennessy was at this event. Mm. And the smell of it triggered me, triggered me. And I'm just gonna keep it all the way 100. And this is gonna be my message on Monday. And the message is going to be, you're never there. Always in a process, it's a continual work. And the smell of Hennessy was so strong coupled with the fact that I had these personal things swirling, it was the first time in seven years that I really felt 
I really felt uncomfortable. And I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to leave. Um, I left the event about 15, 15 minutes early and I drove back home and it was such a great refresher that we're never there. And I say, we people that had, you know, have struggled with addictions, we're never there because if my system, my mental health wasn't strong enough, Rashad is going back. Like in that moment, I know, and it was a, it wasn't a feeling of fear, James. It was almost like this feeling of, uh, it was like a great awakening for some reason. It was a great awakening. And, um, you know, I, I fought it and won and that, and be honest with you, it was a great awakening, but it was good because it was the first time in seven years. And I've been to, you know, sporting events, been watching the games with the fellas and everybody's drinking. Hey, you want a shot? You want no, I'm good. I've been to rest, you know, restaurants. You want wine? No, I'm good. And there's never an issue. Um, it's not even a, a remotely close to me going back. And what happened, you know, a few weeks ago, um, it's actually July the 5th. And it was like a great awakening, man, that you I always have to be very vigilant of being around alcohol, what's on my mind. Um, and I just literally have to be super, if I'm not super strong, because we're always not strong. I just have to be really vigilant where my mind is at that time. Um, and it was just like a great awakening. But to answer your question, man, I was tired of drinking. I was tired of going through, um, you know, this negative cycle. And, and typically um, I'm going to, I have addictive qualities and I just can't do something one time. I couldn't, I can't take one shot. I can't have one beer. I can't have one glass of wine. It's a whole <laughs> bottle for me. It's like, I'm going to the extreme and I, and I got tired of it. Um, I, I really just got tired of it. I really, really got tired of it. It impacted um, for stretch relationships. Um, I just got sick and tired of it, man. Seriously. Mm. Before, I, before I continue, it's a, um, I don't know if you changed room or something, but it's like a background noise. And I just want to make sure that it doesn't interfere with what we're talking about because Okay, no, I, I didn't change. Let me put in my, my headphone, my headphones to see if that. Okay. Cause I because I don't want people to get distracted. No, no, I, I got you. I understand completely. Okay. Uh, let me see if this makes the quality better. How about now? Can you hear me? Yeah, that's good. Okay. okay so that's okay. So I'm I'm gonna go back a little bit because um quite okay let me ask did you go to any like aa meetings or you just went cold turkey <laughs> so i and i'm laughing only because i went to them um i have some funny stories um and i say funny just not in the sense that i'm making light of alcoholism but prior to me stopping i went to aa a lot and i went to aa for the wrong reasons um at the time i was you know still with the mother of my twins and basically she said rashad you are a train wreck you know, in layman's terms, this relationship can work, but you have to invest in AA meetings. So I would go for her, but not for myself. All right, I'm going, go to the meeting, come out, and my mind is still hell-bent on drinking. And I think that lasted for about a month and a half. Um, and it was like, Rashad, you, you're not doing this for anybody else. You have to do it for yourself. And I, obviously at that time, I wasn't ready to fully invest, but I would go to a meeting here, I would go to a meeting there, and I would pick up some you know, good information, but it just, it wasn't the right time for me. It has to be, an individual has to want to change. 
And at that time, I really didn't want to change. I, I wanted to change based on, um, you know, my desire to be with the mother of my kids at that time. So it just didn't pan out. But here's the interesting thing. Right around the time before I stopped drinking, I think it was in that year. I'm almost certain it was that year that I stopped. There was one moment that I was in my apartment. It was on a Saturday. And when I was like by myself, I would just, I would just drink out of boredom, right? I just, like me being by myself was like a really hard thing to, for me to grasp, you know, grasp the concept. And um, when I was lonely, man, I would drink. Mm-hmm. And, you know, normally from there, I'm calling the fellas and then it like starts a whole day of binge drinking. And so I got so drunk across the street from my apartment was a AA. It was a, it was a college campus, but they had AA meetings on the college campus. I got like pissy drunk, excuse my French for saying it that way. No, you good, you good. And drove to this college campus about five minutes away in search of this AA meeting. But luckily the meeting had been canceled that day. And I am like in a full sweat. This is like August in Baltimore. Humidity is on high. And I am sweating. I mean, like coming down sweat. And I'm drunk and I'm walking, trying to find an AA meeting. And I remember my aunt, God rest her soul, she had called me randomly as I was leaving out. And she said, I can tell that you're drunk. Your speech is slurred. And she said, well, where are you leaving? Are you, you you okay? Do you need me to come get you? She was like that aunt. She would always offer to come get me no matter where I was at and what I was doing when I was drunk. You know, she's just, you know, that quality of a person. And I said, I'm about five minutes from my house. And she said, well, where are you coming from? I said, I was going to an AA meeting. She said, you were going to an AA meeting drunk? And she fell out laughing. <laughs> and, and in my brain, I could normalize it. Mm. I, could, I could normalize it at that time, but I'm pissy drunk. And then a few days later, I woke up and I was like, man, that was one of the craziest things that I've ever done. And luckily, the meeting was canceled. Wow. Um, and so AA, I never really benefited from AA, not because of AA. I think it's phenomenal for people that it works for. Um, and the success stories are really hot, but I wasn't ready. Um, you know, there was a time that, I don't know if you know this, I, I lost a job in Oregon. I was a sports broadcast in Oregon for two years. And I lost the job because I had a DUI. Oh, man. And when I got back to Baltimore, I was ordered to take um, classes. And I would leave the classes and go get drunk. And the classes were for people that had issues with addiction. So I would leave, you know, I would leave the class and go get drunk. And it was just like, that's how my mind, you know, was working at the time. Like, this is stupid. I mean, I would leave the class all the time and go get drunk. (laughs) Um, And it was just, I wasn't, I wasn't ready. I got to ask, because you said, unfortunately, your relationship didn't work out. Was it because of your alcohol addiction? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. It was just um, phenomenal young lady with great co-parents now, but she was on a much higher level of maturity than I was. I thought it was still cool to, you know, take half of my tax money and just go out and drink up the entire summer. Didn't have, didn't even have a savings account. And it was just, it, it just became, that's like one example. It just became too much. Um, and it was a lot of pressure on her. We had twins that were relatively young. And I always like to believe I'm a, a really good father. But as I look back at it, if I can be honest, man, there was probably some times that, you know, she probably had the girls an entire Saturday because I was out drinking from eight in the morning until eight at night. Wow. Um, and, it, and it just it just was absolutely 
too much. So every year that I experience, you know, a new year of sobriety, what I do is I reach out to people that I know me drinking impacted. Like every year I, I text her, you know, just asking for forgiveness. She's already done that. You know, other young ladies where I know drinking might've been an issue. Um, you know, like for an example, I text my mom today, you know, approaching seven years, mom, you know, I, I gotta say, please forgive me. Cause I know many nights you stayed up late, <laughs> you know, praying that I, I, I made it in and you knew I was out drinking. So I always, uh, I always follow the principle. One of the principles that AA has is sort of make amends um, to the people that I know drinking cause, you know, a lot of damage to. You, because you, 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 lost, unfortunately you lost your, um, you lost your wife. Um, things, you know, of course, once that happens, things are never the same. How were you able to overcome that? Because that, I mean, you, 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 you know, you have, you're trying to be sober, but you have to deal with something that, traumatic as losing basically not when i say losing your family it's just not the same so how were you able to overcome that that's a great question the challenges in overcoming it it's it became all mental it became all mental and my mental health started to be the strongest that it's ever been because i was sort of the the happy drunk that like to party, but I also began to use alcohol. And this was the downside of it when I encountered problems. When I encountered problems, it was like, all right, I'm, I'm gonna drink this thing away. And that, um, when, I, when that relationship ended, I was still drinking, you know, and I began to drink even more because I was truly in love with this young lady. I began to drink probably two times more and, you know, it's probably, a, a, you know, four to six months straight every day I'm, I'm having I'm having a drink, you know, going home, you know, twisting off the cap on some Hennessy and having some Hennessy. And so when that relationship ended, I was still actively drinking when I've experienced traumatic events or, you know, some of them traumatic events post um, being sober. It's just been my mental health and God. Mental health God, and I have a, a, a pretty dope support system and a pretty dope support system. And there, there's been some days that it's, you know, it's, it's been challenging since then. I'm just be very honest. But it's, for some reason, I understand that I, I truly feel like that, man, I've been given a second chance. And I actually told somebody this the other day. I believe if I had a drink that I would, I would be so detrimental to myself that in a year or two, I would be dead somehow. Wow. I, I truly believe it, whether it's an accident, driving drunk and having an accident. I mean, I, I live in Baltimore, <laughs> you know, going out and, you know, maybe getting into it with somebody that, that causes, you know, being locked up for some reason, you know, I don't know, manslaughter, DUI again. I would be really detrimental to myself. I would. I would be detrimental to myself because I don't, again, I don't have that ability to just do a little man, I can go out and have one glass of wine with a nice steak dinner, and then I'm on the way home. I've, I've never been wired that way. And no wow. parts of my, my, my being am I wired to just half-heartedly do something. Um, and so since then, it's been, um, it's been God focusing on my mental health, and I, I really have a support system. And then um, as my kids get older, they're more aware 
they're more aware. And so like even going to jail, my kids were like, whoa, we haven't seen dad in three months. And I can't imagine the, the agony that if I went out and you know, I'm, I'm interrupting their life, I take them to school every day. So it's like, well, how, you know, what happens now? Yeah. It, I, I can't even imagine the agony. Now, one of the one of the reasons that I was so attracted to um, your story is because the men on my father's side, um, my father included, always struggle with alcohol. It's run, it's been hell on the men in my family. So I I wanted to know, did you did you have alcohol? Um, did you did fa- people in your family have problems with alcohol? Absolutely. So that's a great question. So my grandmother on my mother's side, she was an alcoholic, a functional alcoholic, you know, would work and come home and I mean, just drink. And she would do this for years and years and years. And there were moments that I can recall actually watching her, you know, while she was drunk. And at the time I didn't understand it. It was like, wow, she's different. She's acting different speech was slurred, you know, cursing. She was like a different grandmother than I would, you know, see her when she wasn't drunk, a beautiful soul. So she struggled with alcoholism, um, a big percentage of her life. And then in terms of my father's side, grandfather was a big drinker, but I wouldn't say that he was an alcoholic, but he, he drunk, you know, a, a big portion of his life. But my family has has been um, unfortunately impacted by substance abuse. I mean, you know, drugs, mm-hmm. you know, coke, heroin, you know, lost family members as a result of it. And it's been like, a, it's been awful. It's been awful as it relates to addiction in my family. Um, and I think just, you know, some of those addictive qualities, I really do believe that uh, it's genetic. I do. I really believe it's, it's genetic to a degree. Um, so. Unfortunately, I, I, I fell victim to the genetic part of what my family has, you know, struggled with. Now, how old are your um, daughters? 13. Just turned 13 on June the 2nd. Because, because you mentioned that it's hereditary. Now, granted, you did get help and you're sober, but do you have a fear that they could possibly go down the same path you went? Wow. Um, James, you might have me in, in tears. <laughs> with that question (laughs) that is a uh that is a a it's definitely a concern of mine it's definitely a concern of mine and um it's it's one that i'm going to i'll say this i'm going to closely monitor and um i've shared it again with them when they were younger you know the downsides of being you know, addicted to anything and using it as a way to cope. Because again, as a therapist, I'm open with my kids. We talk about mental health all the time. But I'll say this, I'll, I'll, closely, I'll closely monitor it, but absolutely it's something that, um, you know, it, it concerns me. Um, it, it really does. It, it really, really, really concerns me. And then just, you know, females and drinking, people can take advantage of you and everything that goes along with not being in at any moment you know, if you're not in the sharpest state of mind, you know, these different things can happen. Accident. So, yeah, it's something that um, 
I, I know when they get older and I see them, like I'm going to really be, uh, really be monitoring it and just, and I, and I pray that it, it's not, um, they don't pick up, you know, any, any of those traits that I had, but alcoholism, substance abuse, it, it, it affects a lot of families. I mean, it, it affects a lot of families and you could start to see like it crossing over to generations crossing over to the generations, man, it's a whole generation of my family that 70, 80% of the people were using heroin. Mm. Um, and so it's, it, it's something that I definitely worry about. Yes, definitely worry about. Okay. I got to give you the chance to, um, to talk about your book because um, I, I would, I wouldn't, I feel I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't give you a chance to at least talk about the book that you wrote. It's funny, I actually had one on my desk. So <laughs> name of my book, for people that are listening, and again, thanks for the, for the alley, I'm gonna just dunk it in. The name of my book is Inmate 458627, and it's called The Man's Story of Mental Health, Love, Hurt, and Healing. And when I went to jail, and I'll tell you the story about jail, obviously for the listeners, but people that are listening, go out and still get a copy of the book. I think it's one that um, it's really about, you know, learning some lessons and through the opportunity of learning lessons and being scarred in the process, understanding that your scars must still tell a story. And, and when I went to, to jail, so I was dating a young lady. She was a minister at one of the local churches in Baltimore, had a pretty good relationship. And at the church that we were attending, a pastor at the church who is a notable pastor, and obviously I, I won't say names because that's not my intention. Mm -hmm. um, he has a, a pretty interesting history with the ladies, and I'll say it that way. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I would ask this young lady all the time, hey, are you guys, because it seems, you know, seems kind of weird, the nature of your relationship. He asks you to do things that don't seem appropriate. Long story short, my, my sense of discernment is pretty high. And so we were dating, and at the end of the relationship, it was kind of rocky toward the end. It was confirmed to me that a lot of things that she was telling me, you know, they were total lies. And like that they were sleeping together probably while I was with her. And to give you the short version, I was so frustrated. It's not frustrated, that's an understatement. I was like, I was enraged, in a state of rage, I'm gonna be honest with you. And um, I went to her house and I knocked on the door I actually kicked the door. She didn't answer. I was like pissed. So I got in my car and it was a Friday night. In the course of a Friday night, from Friday to Saturday, I know I called her about 40 times. So literally, I wanted to curse her out. And that was my intention. It was to curse her out. I was in a very like anxious, angry state. I wanted to curse her out. And, um, you know, I was the next day, um, I was actually driving to her house and the way that I was driving, I was driving past a police station and I saw her car. I was like, is that her? I was like, oh, that is her. She was pulling up in the police station. And I was like, what in the hell is going on? And so I jumped out of my car and I said, what the hell is going on? Well, you know, you, you harassed me. You called me 50 times last night and I'm, you know, she was in the police, about to go in the police station. So she goes in the police station. I walk in and there was a, a, a white female officer. And 
I think she must have called ahead a time and said, hey, you know, can I, what are my rights at this point? Because he called me, didn't hit me anything, but he called me and, you know, he harassed me. And I guess the lady said, hey, you can come down and file charges, right? Mm -hmm. So she's walk, get out to the car, walks into the police station and I follow her, which was like a bad move at that point. I should have just pulled off because she was like elevated. Um, when I walked into the police station, the young officer that she was talking to um, was like really, really like nasty with me, you know, I guess based on what she had, um, the young lady had called and, and potentially said. So the, uh, the officer said, hey, you know, she's pressing charges against you. You better leave here immediately. So I left, got into my car. And when I got into my car, as I'm about to pull off, I see the young lady get in her car and she's about to pull off. So I meet her at the light and I roll down my window to say, hey, like, what in the hell is going on? And we weren't quite off of the police grounds, per se. So an officer runs out and he says, um, sir, I'm going to lock you up for not following my um, colleague's order and, and get off of the grounds. You're technically still on police grounds, and it's called trespassing at this point. And I was like, are you serious? And he was definitely serious. So that's what started this process. So locked up for trespassing. Um, she and I are still attending the same church, which was just an awful, awful experience. Um, you know, there was rumors that I wanted to beat up this pastor. And this pastor is a notable pastor. I was actually going to have a meeting with him because I was teaching Sunday school. And I was told, no, hey, you can't teach Sunday school anymore. And I was frustrated that the pastor never met with me directly. All of this was like through hearsay. Mm. And I had friends that said, hey, Rashad, you know, this pastor is like, Everybody in the world knows this guy. You can't have a meeting with him. You might get upset and say something, and it's just not going to end in a very good manner. So I canceled the meeting. Um, about three months passed, so eventually go to court. That day, I had, my, I had my own show, sort of like an internet radio show. I was prepared to go to work after that. I was doing mental health services at a juvenile jail of all places in Baltimore. And I was prepared to go to work that day, do my show, and life would be normal. It's a misdemeanor charge. I had a friend, a close friend, that says, man, do you think you should get a lawyer? Nah, I don't need a lawyer. It's just a misdemeanor. Mm. And we walk in, cases going, it's flowing. So the judge says, Mr. Mills, you know, what do you do professionally? I said, I am a licensed therapist. I am a motivational speaker and I host a radio show. I do a lot of work in the community, in the community, mentoring and working with, you know, troubled, troubled guys in Baltimore. Oh, man, you're a great guy. Okay. And everything is going just as I expected it to go. Judge is even making jokes. You're a therapist? Yeah, I got some guys in lockup that may need you. Courtroom is in tears, laughing. Everything is going just as I expected. And at the 25th hour, and this is how I know it was ordained for me to be locked up. Those two words really don't always go together, ordained and locked up. But it was ordained <laughs> for me to be locked up. That's, that's not like a phrase that you hear, right? Nah. <laughs> and so when I look back at it, God had, this was a part of God's plan. 25th hour, the prosecutor says, or the state's attorney rather, says, Your Honor, I would like to bring this young lady up and have her side of the story heard. She comes up and she paints a picture in the courtroom that I'm like the black version of Hitler. Mm -hmm. That's the picture that she painted. You know, he has daughters, Your Honor. He should know how to treat women, which she was right about that. I should have never called, even went to her house. Um, and, you know, um, it was, she just painted the most vicious picture of me and she painted it so well, Picasso couldn't, couldn't have done better. The judge sort of twists his face 
And these are images that are embedded in my mind, by the way. Like I, I could literally see this judge. He was twisting his face sort of like on, a, on an angle. And he takes his glasses and he places them like on the tip of his nose, like a librarian would. And he's kind of looking through, not even through the glasses, but looking over the glasses. And he says, well, Mr. Mills, I look at you differently now. And I said, uh-oh, this is not going well. And he said, after hearing this young lady speak, I'm going to give you three years. I'm going to suspend two and a half, and you're going to do six months. And before I could even utter my next breath, I heard the words bailiff cuff him. <clears throat> before I could even think, <clears throat> the handcuffs were on me. And I could hear people in the courtroom is, um, were saying phrases like, the, you know, this is sort of a, a Baltimore slang. The judge is geeking, meaning, you know, he's, he's tripping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I heard, hell no. I heard my man is going to jail for telephone calls. And as I'm hearing these like echoes from the courtroom, I'm being put on the elevator to go down to the bottom of the court to start my booking process. <sighs> I am in a total, James, total state of shock. Total state of shock. Now I've done enough to go to, to jail. You know, I, and I, I would have earned that, you know, when I was younger, selling counterfeit money, selling coke, dope, walking around with guns, trying to be this thug that I really wasn't, trying to play this role. I would have said, okay, but for this charge at this state of my life, I mean, and I'm like, you know, when I'm start the process, you know, I'm in the, in the cell with a bunch of young guys and they, uh, some of the young guys were so, um, in a state of shock because I was dressed. I had on a nice suit, you know, my normal attire that I would, you know, dress up every day for my job at the juvenile jail. Yeah. And some of the guys were saying, man, you are a, a lawyer. Why are you in the cell? You're a lawyer, right? And I said, no, I'm not a lawyer. Um, yeah, I, man, you have to be a lawyer, but why do they put you in a cell with us? And I said, man, I'm an inmate just like you. Um, and so it started just this very interesting process of being locked up for, uh, it was six months, but I did three months on six months for telephone misuse. I didn't even know the charge existed. And Man. every place that I went into the jail and a, and a guy might say, hey, hey, bro, what you down for? And I would tell them they would do one of two things. They would say, Man, you'll be out tomorrow because maybe the judge made a mistake. You know, the jailhouse lawyers mm -hmm. or. Um, they would laugh. Yeah, that's one of those crazy. two things, they would laugh like, man, that can't be real. Can't be real. Like when, when you first go into, you know, the, the jail, um, before you actually get your unit, you're in um, uh, sort of like intake, but I forgot the name that they call it, but it's like intake. Yeah, I know some like in processing, basically, like. Basically. And so you're in this giant, you know, sort of um, this pod, you know, two different tiers and, and, uh, I was listening to some of the stories. Some guys are receiving, man, I'm about to go home because I have a bail on an armed robbery charge, on a handgun charge. Mm. And I'm saying to myself, I'm here on this. <laughs> and for the first month, I knew that I was getting out. I knew it. I knew it. I, I'll be out. I'll be out. And I started to do, you know, uh, what I call like jailhouse research. And there's a term called, uh, I think it's, it's in my book. I think it's corpus habeas. And it's, it's a Latin term. Oh, habeas it's, corpus? Habeas corpus, that's it. 
Okay. And it's, you know, it's Latin and it means like wrongfully accused, wrongfully imprisoned. And I just knew that, hey, I'm going to get out. But that didn't happen. Um, and looking back at it, it was it was really, really good. Three times I thought I, was, I would be able to get out early um, on an appeal. Uh, my appeal came, but it came the day after I actually got out of court. So I get out of court on the 27th of September. And on a Thursday, I'm going right back to court for the appeal. So the appeal came the day after I got out. And I said, God, you got a sense of humor. And so for three <laughs> times, I thought I was going to get out. And I equated it to, you know, Paul in the Bible, these thorns in my side, three thorns in my side. And I thought, oh, man, I'm going to get out. And it was like, no, these are my thorns. These are my thorns. And I have to go through the entire, through the entire process. Um, and it was like, it was the most hellish experience at that point in my life. I had other experiences. You know, I was shot when I was younger. But, you know, up until that point, I hadn't had any of those like really wild experiences, but it was like, whoa. And um, when I went in, I promised myself that I was scarred mentally, but I promised myself that I would not leave jail and that would be the end of my, my story. That scar wouldn't tell the story of my life. Unfortunately, you know, guys in my family, most of them have, um, been involved in excessive prison sentences. You know, father yeah. did 30 years off and on. 20 years straight, was free for about 10, did another 10. Just got out in 2021, my biological father. So I'm 44, <laughs> 30 years of my life, he was gone. I have a cousin that is my age that just um, was released earlier this year after doing 26 years, you know, uncles did 15 years. And so I began to think about these things. And I said, my story cannot end this way. This mental scar that's that's on my brain, I have to tell a different story. I can't let my story end when I'm going to jail and you know my life is, I can't recover from it. And so I went in and I had already released the motivational mixtape before, and which is on Spotify if anybody wants to, to go listen to it, Rashad Mills uh, Happy Hour. And cause my whole branding is based on, you know, this, this happy hour of turning, you know, the drinking into something positive. And to make a long story short, when I was in there, I began to get like yellow pieces of paper and the yellow pieces of paper you would, you know, you could just do general writing on and you had what they call flexi pens. You know, they're not going to give you a hard pen, you know, could be used as a weapon. Right. I would grab this pen and every day I would start to write different things. And at first it was this motivational mixtape with the same, it was going to be inmate four, five, eight, six, two, seven. I had a, I forgot the name of it. It was a motivational mixtape. And then at one point I said, you know what? I'm going to write a book. Because all of my happy hour messages that I was releasing every Friday, I was going to put them in a book. And I was actually working on the book. But interestingly enough, guess what? That book never seemed to be able to get off the ground. It was going to be like a, a 365-day guide for motivation. And it's going to be based on my messages. But I could never get the book off the ground, interestingly enough. And I said, you know what? I'm going to write a book. And every experience that I had in jail... I started to write it down. And if I was, you know, at work release, I would remember the experience in my head. If I was, you know, I had a job working in the jail kitchen and certain things, I would remember the experiences. You know, I worked in the, uh, in the dump, you know, basically separating trash, which was one of the worst experiences of my life. Mm. You know, bags, you would throw a bag and feces and urine would come out the bag and you would smell like that for 11 hours standing up. It was just dust all over the place. It was awful. 
But every experience I would remember. And when I would get back to my cell at night, for the lights went off, I would write. Mm. I would write. I would write the experiences down. When I had a work release working in a real estate office where I had access to a computer, I began to like, I opened up a Microsoft Word. I would just jot some things down. And um, when I got out, I said, I, I owe it to myself that my, my experience did not end just another brother going to jail, potentially throwing away his life. And I said, I, I can't allow it to happen. And I wrote down, you know, my memory began to be like photographic. I remember everything. And I would just write and write. Um, and then when I got released, put together a book. Um, the original book came out with a lot of grammatical errors. The publishing team did an awful job. But I think the updated version that's on Amazon has all the corrections. And, um, and if any point stopped me, because man, I could, I could talk forever. <laughs> um, I, it, I almost operated from a place of shame. To be honest with you, James, like, man, I went to jail. Mm. You know, this is, you know, this is, this is not cool to go to jail, especially at this age. And then on this charge, I began to operate from a place of shame. But then the more and more people would tell me, man, this book impacted me. It touched me in, in some way. Um, and I said, man, this is, this is my story. This is just, this, this is my story. And there's so many lessons out of it. So I, I truly do encourage people to get the book. And as a therapist, I look back now, one of the things that I realized is that the anxiety that I had that allowed me to go to that place, she's going to hear how I feel tonight. <laughs> that was my attachment style, my anxious attachment style. And I, I, I'm really doing a lot of work with my clients on attachment styles. And I thought it the other day, I said, wow, my attachment style was part of the reason that actually I, I went to jail. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of my story, man. But I I own it. Uh, wow. I, I really, really, I really, really, I really, really own it. Wow. And, and before we end, because because I, I I really, really do appreciate the time. Um, I want to get this as the final question. What are you most proud of being sober for seven years now? Ooh, man. Nobody's ever asked me that. And I've done <laughs> A lot of energy. That's a great question, James. What I'm most what I'm most proud of is that I have developed the mental fortitude and the mental bandwidth to handle problems in a healthier way. And as a result of that, I'm not dangering myself or anybody else. And because I handle, I can handle problems now in a different way. My kids, um, my wife, you know, I wasn't married to her before, but my wife and others uh, that are near and dear to me, they don't have to lose out based on my inability to handle problems. Wow. Wow. Listen, I really appreciate the time. Um, I want again, because that, because again, because of, my family with alcohol it's really um important that i got this podcast out so i want to thank you for taking the time to do it i want to congratulate you on the seven years of sobriety and i wish you all the best moving forward thank you so much for having me i, I appreciate it greatly I, I truly truly do i appreciate the opportunity and before we end it please tell the people how they can follow you and also how they can get the book Absolutely. So on all forms of social media, I am Rashad Bowtie Mills. The Bowtie is when I'm out speaking in 
Um, you know, when I was doing um, in, you know, sort of in office therapy, I always wear bow ties. I just like it. I think it's a really fresh look. And the bow tie nickname took on, you know, a mind of its own. And it's like a part of my happy hour branding. It looks like a bow tie. And so Rashad Bowtie Mills on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And the book is on Amazon.com. Inmate 458627, A Man's Story of Mental Health, Love, Hurt, and Healing. And if anybody purchases the book, um, if you find me on social media, please feel free to send me your, your, your thoughts of the book. I'm always interested in, in people's thoughts. All right. Again, thank you for your time, and I wish you all the best. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. And I want to take the time to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. I truly appreciate your support. You can follow me on Instagram at conversations underscore with underscore Lamp. My Facebook is also conversations with Lamp. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Again, thank you all for listening. Have a great day.